Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. This is one of Deep State Radio's briefs and debriefs. Hello, this is David Rothkopf. I am your host here at National Security Magazine, a production of Deep State Radio. And we are extremely fortunate today to be joined by General Charles Jacoby, um, who had a 37-year career in the United States military, culminating as commander of the North American Aerospace Defense Command and at uh, U.S. NORTHCOM, and uh, who, but who has served all around the world and, and who today uh, chairs the Modern War Institute at West Point in addition to other activities. Welcome, General. Thanks, David. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you today. Yeah, my wife is also from Michigan, so she considers this to be a step up for the work we're doing. Um, <laughs> Great. Uh, where in Michigan is she from? Yeah, well, you know, I know Michiganders, and so that leads to you to hold up your hand to look like a mitten, and then I point, right? That's, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm a Detroiter, what, and I'm always proud to say that. <laughs> well, she's not too far away. She's from Ipsy. Okay, good enough. <laughs> uh, uh, well, you know. Um, uh, in any event, um, you, you know, I thought perhaps we could talk about a couple of things that touch upon the, your experience over your career and then shift to next generation issues. And, you know, one of the places that, I, that I'll start, and, and, and again, you know, if, so, if something I ask is uncomfortable for you, you know, or too political, just, you know, sidestep it. Uh, but, sure. but, but, you know, I, I can't help but wonder if, you know, as Northcom did its 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 evaluations of risks and threats, uh, it saw the southern border as 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 quite the threat that the White House sees it as today. Um, and uh, what your view is of deploying troops um, uh, to stop um, a theoretical caravan? Yeah, um, I will tell you that first of all. Um, when I took over the job, uh, everyone told me, well, you're going to do hurricanes, fires, floods, and uh, the like. And that it was really, you know, primarily defense support to civil authorities. And in the back of everybody's mind, you know, the disaster in Japan had just occurred, the, the reactor issue in Fukushima. And, and there was a sense that maybe the reaction to that wasn't quite as good as it could have been. And boy, we need to do better. And so that's where I was, my frame of mind was. It was a surprise to get Nora and Northcom, which is one of the great things in, uh, in the military. Uh, never a dull moment. But I, uh, I was very um, interested to watch the needle turn uh, and spin around the dial from defense support to civil authorities, hurricanes, earthquakes, etc. And that increasingly over the almost four years that I had the job, really uh, straight up defense of the homeland became a bigger and bigger concern. And 
uh, you know, what were the trend lines and what were the vulnerabilities and those kinds of things. And of course, any border is a vulnerability, a potential vulnerability. There's such a stark contrast between our northern border and our southern border, by the way. And, you know, you would think that that uh, we would want uh, what's really a model for a border, our northern border of Canada. You'd think we'd want to, you know, mimic that or duplicate that on our southern border, and that that would be the goal. Um, but actually, uh, spent a lot of a lot of time working uh, southern border issues, primarily through partnerships with agencies that had authority to operate on the border. Uh, one of the challenges in NORTHCOM is that um, your the authority to operate in the United States is for federal troops is uh, very much constrained by law, custom, policy, tradition. And so you usually get things done by working with partnership. And so uh, we really had migrant cycles of migrant children showing up on the border um, in 2012, 13, 14. And, you know, large groups showing up on the border, uh, oftentimes um, sick and most of the time unaccompanied. And uh, my personal opinion, and and, uh, I don't want to go any further than that, expedited to and across the border by the same groups that bring you drugs, guns, cash, and any other thing that you don't like crossing the border. And so, um, so by the, by saying that, uh, also most of the time, uh, this is an act of exploitation in my view of those kids. So, um, what we did was usually support to other agencies, whether it was uh, Health and Human Services or DHS, you know, Customs and Border Patrol. There is pretty well known and described uh, authorities and roles to play on the border. And and we primarily provided support functions, whether it was medical or, uh, you know, surveillance capabilities or things like that. So um, I think in this latest round, um, you know, the caravan is a different or, you know, whatever, you know, the method of spiriting them up here is, you know, part of the, you know, intensely politicized environment we're in right now. But in essence, as a mission, it's not that much different than the one we were asked to do in the past where we housed migrant kids in unused military facilities and tried to do the best we can working with our or other agencies. And and so I looked at it really as a push-pull facilitate problem. There are real reasons that uh, uh, fear corruption violence that pushes folks north out of Central America and other places towards our border. Uh, the pull is uh, whatever, you know, actual or apocryphal stories they hear about uh, you know, the green valleys up there in the United States and, uh, you know, whatever, whatever our policies are that, that, uh, tend to, you know, encourage moms and dads in Central America that love our, their kids as much as we love ours to send them on that journey. Uh, 
And then the, uh, so you got a push pull and you got a facilitation and facilitation is done by the same crappy transnational criminal organizations that do the rest of the work. So the best we could do was help our uh, other agencies in handling the uh, folks, you know, humanely and compassionately as they got across or if they got across and then uh, to help our partners in Mexico to do our best to, to uh, thwart the efforts of the transnational criminal organizations that that uh, don't respect borders. In fact, they see them as opportunities. So, so I think there are uh, risks on the border because I I'm personally uh, of the opinion that those are the same guys that would cooperate with uh, terrorist organizations if given half a chance. And there's some work that's been done on that, but. Um, uh, really, um, it's it's not a fundamental military mission, but uh, along the border, you know, everybody ends up doing windows trying to get the mission done together. Did that take a stab at it for you? Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Let me let me go to uh, prior to your uh, work uh, in 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 North America. Um, you you spent some of the formative years uh, that you had um, as an officer in 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 the greater Middle East, if if you will, um, um, starting with some time in Afghanistan. We've we're now in the midst of a discussion about uh, what seems to be the final disposition of our stay there, talking to the Taliban, um, uh, uh, seeming to want to uh, withdraw largely or or. Uh, 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 altogether from from Afghanistan, and I'm just wondering, what's your take? And do you feel comfortable, essentially, after um, 18 years of of fighting in Afghanistan, of handing the keys back to the Taliban? Well, first of all, you know, as a retired guy, um, I'm not reading the intel every day. And I'm not uh, sitting in the policy and the strategy rooms. So uh, I did have a son last year in Afghanistan, however, uh, in the same province, doing pretty much the same thing I did in 2004 and five. But the has that ever been something that American, you know, officers experienced, you know, war that went on that long um, yeah. that your son was... Yeah, it's interesting. I'm sure that well, many of my many of my peers are very very similar. Uh, you know, have family that now serving or has served, and so um, that's a phenomenon of our volunteer force. And uh, you know, I I don't think it's a I don't think it's a bad thing, but I think it's kind of a benchmark of how long this darn things lasted. And so. <laughs> Uh, and I'm sure the uh, Taliban feel the same way, by the way. <laughs> you know, Taliban that we were chasing around uh, now have, we're chasing around their sons. So um, it was not out of the question in 2004 and five when I was there of trying to reach, uh, reach out to Taliban. You know, we dropped leaflets and did all those kinds of things and said, come on in and talk it through. But it, it's it's important that I don't. I'm guessing that it's still the same. That 
that uh, making a deal with the Taliban also involves the Afghan government and how the Afghan government feels about it. Uh, I recall it not being favorably uh, uh, looked upon by the Afghan government in 2004 and five. It was uh, a government in its very formative and fragile stages, and I can understand why, but uh, probably there have been a series of missed opportunities over time to do something like that. The big question is, um, and what I think that folks who have been engaged in the fight over time is that uh, one of the overriding priorities was to ensure that the kinds of activity that uh, ended up generating an attack on the United States would not be allowed to happen again and emanate from that region to include, you know, the entire uh, area. And so, I, you know, we have been successful in that, but I think the solution to the problem is not uh, killing our way out of it. And so, my take is it's uh, it's worth uh, the effort to try to reach uh, this kind of solution. And I just think it's going to be the nature of the agreement. And then it'll be our will, our national will to ensure that we're satisfied on a, a routine basis that we have a way to measure and understand, uh, you know, if the conditions still are maintained that prevent those attacks on the United States or our allies and partners. And so that's where we have historically not, you know, not uh, maybe been as, uh, as uh, good as we want to be is how we, how we lead things and sustain things. And folks that uh, left Vietnam uh, probably felt that way when they watched Saigon fall in 1975 and folks that have left Iraq probably felt that way when they saw, ISIS run roughshod over large territories in Iraq. So how we lead does matter in terms of security in the United States. And so I know that the folks in uniform and that are working the issue politically uh, are well aware of that. But they, I have not seen any details on that. But that's my kind of feeling about it. Well, you know, one of the things, you know, regardless of where one is, you know, politically in the United States, that one yeah. might support, you know, support uh, that the, the, the president sometimes talks about is the end of endless wars. And, you know, yeah. we've been engaged in the Middle East in this sort of current round um, uh, since uh, 1991. So, you know, that's, uh, uh, you know, 20, uh, 27 years or something like that. And, um, uh you know, if we pull from Afghanistan, if we draw down in Syria, uh, the, you know, those seem like positive moves. But as you look at the region, and you spent a lot of time uh, in Iraq and elsewhere in the region, um, we also see existing terrorist threats. We see instability. We see um, regimes that are hostile to one another uh, gaining strength and positioning for conflict. What do you see looking forward as the right kind of a stance right. for the U.S. from a security perspective in this region? Offshore, uh, more focus on 
you know, uh, uh, diplomacy and unmanned, you know, missions or, you know, uh, covert missions, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I mean, what, what, what do you do to avoid endless wars or permanent presence? Yeah. Well, I, I do think that, uh, <laughs> so I, I'll throw a zinger out there for you. Um, you know, I'm a 1960s kid, so uh, I'm one of your failed baby boomers. And uh, <laughs> the, uh, I can, I, I'm going to guess that if this was a, not a volunteer force, that we would not have been in Afghanistan for 18 years. What do you think? Yeah. Yeah, that's a... I mean, I mean, so there's, you know, when you, when you think about, you know, how do you, how do you avoid an endless conflict? Well, <laughs> you know, you, you make sure that it stays front and center in the national conscious. Maybe that's a, maybe that's an important aspect of it too. Uh, be, more, in, there, in other words, everybody, everybody's got to have some skin in the game. Everybody's got to have some skin in the game, or it's very convenient to have a uh, relatively painless, endless war, except for the pain and, that uh, you know the Afghan people feel and the services feel, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, but that's what we do, and and uh, you know I'm proud of the service that every single rotation to Afghanistan has done, and like I said, they have uh, they have kept their finger in the dike of another big attack emanating from that area, which is a likely you know which had had in the past been a likely outcome of of a precipitous. Uh, uh, not thought through uh, withdrawals. So I, I am a little bit, um, I don't think you're going to deter anyone and police anything with a drone. So, um, I, you know, I, I think you're either engaged and you have skin in the game. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm not making commentary on whether we should have bases or this or that or the other thing, but um, you have to, if you want to influence, then you've got, like you just said, you've got to have skin in the game. Um, and so whatever the deal is we come up with and, and, uh, and I hope we do. Um, uh, I hope that uh, we put in place the mechanisms to demonstrate our will to, to um, you know, ensure that the the agreements are are kept and the country's interests are protected and the region's interests are protected. I look, you know, when we said the the pivot to the Pacific, you know, what we were really saying is we really want to pivot out of the Middle East <laughs> and and. Uh, <laughs> And it, oh, by the way, um, you know we we did have greater interests in the in the Pacific that we needed to address, but we still have important interests, allies, partners uh, throughout the Middle East that um, if we want to influence the you know regional stability and protect our interests, then we have to be willing to be engaged. And there are different ways to do it than sending a hundred and 65,000 men and women to Iraq and 110,000 to Afghanistan and keeping them in there for a long period of time. But uh, finding ways as not just the military, but whole of government ways to stay engaged has been a, a useful and powerful tool for us. And uh, I just think that we need more to be more imaginative and more 
they're more willing to engage in uh, maybe not shooting first and and uh, you know working it out later, but working on the front end. You know, I I have not seen the great roadmap for how we're going to address uh, terrorism other than you know pulling pulling people out of buildings and up tops and that kind of stuff. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't. You know, my sense is that you know I. You know, I'm not sure that there is is a great roadmap, but I my my experience um, mm-hmm. in my one little visit up to the Modern War Institute is that there's a lot of interesting conversations going on there about yeah. next generation issues, and you know yeah. you talk about drones and the inability of drones to deal with these things, but we are moving to a, you know kind of a radically different landscape in terms of the nature of uh, conflict and 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 security issues, whether it's drones or swarms of drones or unmanned vehicles or artificial intelligence uh, and so forth. And of course, you know, for years people talk about new technologies having impact, and the paradigm remains essentially the same. But the central element, in the paradigm for you know all of conflict for all of human history has been people. You know, it's it's the, the 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 number of people you put on the field, how well trained those people are, how well equipped those people are, and so forth. And we do seem to be moving towards an era in which the you know productive capacity, the ability to produce smart machines, may may become more important. It's not that people won't be important, but it does change the paradigm, don't you think? And 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 how prepared are we for that kind of change? Yeah, sure. I. I uh, I agree that uh, I mean I think you know you just described uh, you know emerging characteristic of of uh, you know future conflict you know, you know rapid technological development global access to information I mean every the bar has been lowered and and it's not just what is being developed it's who's got access to it and. It's going to be nation states, yeah, absolutely. But it's going to be more than nation states, and it's going to be small states as well as big states. Anybody that's got a, a buck or two that they can put against it, you know, will find access to big data, can develop, uh, you know, the technologies if they have a mind to. Um, and so I, I think. Uh, all of the things that you mentioned are, are absolutely going to become a part of the fabric of, of uh, you know, not just the battlefield, but of our lives and kind of a grinding conflict that uh, we, we feel right now in terms of what's really competition amongst, uh, you know, states and non-states for uh, influence. So, yeah, I, when I, when I mentioned drones before, it was in the context of, you know, if you really uh, are going to be engaged and, you know, form alliances and partnerships and, and uh, you know, make, make deals, uh, it requires some human, or human interaction and some human commitment. And uh, I, I, I uh, and, and that's kind of the ultimate skin in the game. I, of course, it will include all of the technology that, that uh, can en- enhance our capabilities, but 
Uh, I really think this this next big issue is just you know not just the technology, but you know the 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 entry point has been lowered um, just because of the access to that information. And there's also in my mind, some of the, you know, the more difficult issues deal with anonymity and decreased accountability and those kinds of things as well. Well, uh, you know, so, another, oh, I'm sorry, go on. Yeah, it's not clean. It's not, it's not, uh, no battlefield has ever been clean, but these are, these are really becoming muddy. Go ahead. No, I was just to say, you know, I know you went to West Point and, you know, I, when I, uh, uh, think about West Point, the history of West Point. One of the things that strikes me is that when it was really established, it was the beginning of the industrial era. And the decision was made that if you're going to train leaders for the military in the beginning of the industrial era, engineering is a big part of that, right? And and particularly, you know, we've raised military leaders largely um, uh, in industrial era uh warfare and and the, also the culture carries that forward so uh, the you know all the incentives are built into the kind of systems we're used to and you know you 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 were a trailblazer becoming the commanding general um, uh, you know uh, here in in North America but, but the first one who had not been a pilot uh, but it's hard to become uh, a leader in say the Air Force if if you if you haven't flown aircraft, uh, or the leader in the Navy, if you haven't commanded a carrier battle group or or, or commanded, you know, nuclear uh, missile submarines, et cetera, et cetera, because that's kind of the culture. And we're now entering an era in which perhaps the aircraft are going to be unmanned and perhaps you need systems engineers and you need, you know, General officers who have a background as nerds, you know. I mean, it's I, you know, I'm, I'm you know, <laughs> yep. You know, yeah. Listen, I have a I have a son at the Air Force Academy, and you just described him perfectly. <laughs> I hope he doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> He's a physicist, <laughs> right? But but that's what you need, right? You need physicists, and yeah. you need gamers, and you need all sorts of people with all sorts of different right. skill sets. But that means you right. need to change the incentive structures as one rises up the chain of command. And it also means that you need to sort of look at the overall culture. I mean, I, I, I know I was just talking to somebody from a very big company, one of the biggest companies in the world, well over a hundred years old, has made, it's a it's car company and, and, and everybody who runs company was a industrial production engineer. But now they look at it and, you know, maybe you're from Detroit and can be sensitive to this, now they look at a car and most of the what a car is is software and it changes everything about the business. All of a sudden, you know, they were trained to run an industrial company, now they're running a software company. And I just sort of yeah. seem to think that this that there's a similar culture shock that's got to happen within the military. Yeah. I think in the end though, you got to always remember what business you're in. And uh, you know, just like uh Maybe GE. You gotta be careful not to go, uh, you know, chasing, uh, chasing in the dark corners of, you know, consumer finance and things like that. You're a jet engine company. I don't, I don't know, um, you know, what the right analogy is, but I know that the United States Army uh, uh, definitely has, uh, you know, some cultural adjustments that have to be made, and that's why. 
the superintendent, Bob Caslin, asked us to, uh, you know, put together this Modern War Institute and make sure that the right questions are being asked and that our cadets are asking questions. And they begin a, uh, a lifetime of soldiering, which includes critical thinking and asking questions and being in favor of what's going to happen as well as, uh, you know, knowledgeable about their heritage and lineage and all that. I think the Army has this broader mandate that, um, you know, the question for us isn't whether we, we can do something necessarily standoff or unmanned. The question is, how do we do our mission? which in the end comes down to, um, you know, more of a human endeavor. I think you would agree that, that uh, other services can, can be a little more platform centric. Ours is kind of human centric. Um, um, but uh, beyond that, uh, we have, you know, this contest is now happening uh, even ashore is happening in all domains and it's happening, uh, both, uh, before we enter into conflict and during conflict and probably after conflict. And so we really need to be questioning, uh, uh, a lot of, a lot of our, uh, biases. And that's one of the things that, uh, we're hoping that, uh, the uh, products and the events and the opportunities that the Modern War Institute offers cadets is to to think broadly and get excited about it and passionate about it and help us, uh, you know, wrestle the future that's, you know, already with us. Uh, and, I, and I don't think you wait, wait till you're a colonel to do that. I think you start them thinking about that. It, that should be that should be part of our culture questioning, thinking, and uh, being aware. Uh, and that's, that's really what we're trying to add to the military pillar at this point with uh, MWI. I think in the end, though, uh, you know, the General Matt, uh, Secretary Mattis, you know, he stood up that close combat lethality task force because uh, there's also awareness that in the end, you know, the lethality of the of the uh, systems is will be the final arbiter and you know that's the thing that that only we do there's a lot of other things we do and a lot of other things we share with other agencies and partner with other agencies but um that's what those are the things we we really do need to make sure that we uh, can do and uh, must do the things that that is expected of the military to do and that we're not going to be able to subcontract out. It does seem to suggest that two things. One, uh, you know, kind of a big rethink about the way we look at the, at the military may be in order, because whereas that role for the Army may make sense, there's obviously, if you, on, in the platform-based services, likely to be more of a shift towards smart systems and and unmanned systems and that's going to have a consequence and how do you integrate the operators of those unmanned systems with the the, the human element which is largely resident right. in the army but you know you also have the issues of you know 
multiple expeditionary forces in our military, multiple navies, multiple air forces, and so forth. And that kind of redundancy may not make sense in this new environment, not just because it's redundant, but also because the other thing you have to build into the system is adaptability. The, the pace of change is going to be um, much faster. You know, most of the big platforms we talk about today, you know, they're, they're in a planning stage for seven plus years, 10 years, and then they're expected to be in the field stage for 30 years. And with what we're talking about technologically, that kind of paradigm doesn't work either. Well, I think you bring up a really interesting point. It, it, you know, a lot of the things you're talking about are we're biased towards because they've been historical or recent history. They've been our competitive advantages. And so there's a tendency to double down on our competitive advantages. And it's particularly dangerous, not dangerous. It, this is a awkward time uh, because um you know, we've experienced a shift in funding. And so there's been a, not just a watershed of awareness that, you know, the environment is changing rapidly before our very eyes. And now you know, state threats are emerging when we thought states didn't matter anymore. And, and you know, some of this really didn't appear uh, to the, you know, to the bulk of the American people, maybe until, you know, 14, 13, 14, 15, you know, Russia decided to go into Crimea and South China Sea, pushing each other back and forth. But all the signs were there through the, through the, uh, you know, first two decades of the, of the century. And so, um, you know, our competitive advantages, you know, we've got to look hard at them and see which ones do we double down on and which ones do we flip because, um, you know, the processes that our national industrial capability and our technological superiority that has been based on, you know, are not keeping up with what we need. And, uh, and you bring up great points. Our processes and some of our organizations are not uh, competitive in this new environment. And our adversaries have studied us and they've reformed and they have uh, they're presenting us with uh, different challenges. And I think that, you know, some of the things that we thought were advantages that we held are they can exploit and make disadvantages, precision strike, command and control, anything that they can deny, global logistics, stealth, uh, all the things that, you know, we've invested so heavily in. Uh, if we're not careful, they can become a liability, you know, a, a exquisitely precise missile that you uh, rely on, you know, uncontested space to provide timing and, 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 you know, precise coordinates and guidance and those kinds of things that can be denied to us if we're not careful. And, and then it becomes a problem of, holy smokes, I can't produce enough of these things. I can't, they're, they're uh, they're they're not you know functioning the way they're supposed to. So, you know, I think we we do have to be careful about uh, about falling back on what we've considered to be you know fundamental truths about what we're good at and what what our where our advantages are, and make sure that you know where we where we need to double down on. For instance, 
one of our true competitive advantages in the past has been a stable political process and our national will to do things. And so um, seems like they can pick at that somewhat too and, uh, and challenge that. Now that's one we probably need to double down on, make sure that we're protecting that and preserving that. Um, so I, I think you bring up, a, you bring up great points. All of these things are gold mines for people to write about, for cadets to study and, and understand. And there are some of the things we do in the modern war Institute are absolutely, uh, thinking about, you know, how these things evolving on the battlefield where, where, you know, we've done things like our contemporary battlefield assessments and taking cadets to Ukraine and and uh, Georgia and other places where they can talk to folks that have been engaged in recent conflict and have seen how these things are playing out. It's real. It's real interesting, and and we could go on and on. I I also think there'd be some very interesting dialogue between what you guys are doing uh, and what some of these big corporations are going through. They're grappling with the same kind of sure. issues, and and also you know recognizing that you know, other factors are going to come into play. You know, whose microprocessor is in your cell phone becomes strategically significant, <laughs> right? And, yeah, absolutely. And so all of a sudden that changes trade laws and export control regimes. And, and, and you know, we're likely to head into a period of real tension with countries like China over these issues for the next several years that have other kinds of knock-on consequences. And also you can have the possibility that countries like China develop and an edge and things like AI um, right. that could also could also be an issue. Anyway, we I wish we had the time to go through all these things here and and perhaps you know you'll come back and join us again someday. These are you know we we, we tend to get wrapped around the axle of today's news and in most discussions, uh, and yet these are really the big and important issues, the ones that go out several decades and require us to really sort of look inward and understand where we've got to change in fundamental ways. You're doing great work on that uh, at the Modern War Institute, and you've clearly done great thinking about it throughout your career. Uh, and for that and for joining us, we thank you very much. Uh, you bet. I, I, I would like to thank, uh, if this is our wrap up, um, you know, there, there was some real uh, vision for MWI that, you know, was not mine. Uh, you know, there was a General Caslin asked for a panel when he was up at uh, West Point to make sure our military pillar was first class and was thinking this way. And uh, Modern Warfare Institute came out of the recommendations of that. It's been sustained by the current superintendent, but really the the crown jewels are guys like Colonel Liam Collins and Dr. Lionel Beener and the Iron Majors and and folks that are uh, you know everyday both teaching and producing uh, material for uh, the cadets and for the army and for the nation to uh, to try to stay ahead of this. Well, it's a really important point. Uh, I had the privilege to go up there once and talk to the folks, and and it was a, a, a real great privilege for me, but I think for most people who are listening, they would find the the nature of the conversations and the quality of the thinking and the quality of the thinkers um, to be real heartening because it, it does show we are thinking beyond the horizon. So with that in mind, thank you very, very much. Hopefully you'll join us again in the future. And uh, that's it for 
uh, National Security Magazine for this episode. And uh, if you want more about this, go to deepstateradionetwork.com. We've got other episodes. You can uh, uh, listen to the other podcasts, read other kind of content that we've got, uh, and even uh, join up. Thank you very much on behalf of National Security Magazine. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.